0: The Father. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know Him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the Word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, and the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray this morning that you would give us, as a church and individually as members of this body here, godly ambitions. Lord, that our desires would match your desires, that our wants would match your wants that our hopes and dreams would match yours, and that what we desire would be godly and of eternal value. Lord, we want to pray not only for ourselves this morning, but we want to pray for Crazy Love Church. We pray that you would give them godly ambitions. We pray that you would give them and us faithfulness, faithfulness to your word, faithfulness to your plan, faithfulness to sound doctrine that would shape what we believe and what we do and how we represent you in the world. Lord, we pray for our anonymous missionaries. We are grateful that they are homegrown, and we have had the privilege of sending them out. But we keep them for their safety, anonymous, Lord. Uh, But we we thank you for the praises that they have expressed to us, Lord. We thank you that uh, their visas are in hand, and as we prayed for that, you supplied that. Not only for them, but others of our missions partners as well. As hard as those are to come by right now, you have provided those, Lord. We thank you uh, that they see your spirit at work in the translators who, uh, who are spending time in your word and translating your word. We thank you for that, Lord. We thank you uh, for uh, the, the translation work that continues even amidst difficulties right now and, and for the 15 students who are studying your word. Lord, we pray with them as they have asked us to for their health and safety and protection and for the protection of those who are working uh, with them as COVID increases where they are. Lord, we pray that your spirit would continue to be at work in the translators and, and would continue to do great things in and among them. But we also pray for uh, the spread of the gospel, that, uh, that your gospel would go out, that it would call people to repentance and to yourself and that your church would grow and that homegrown leaders would be raised up there to lead the church and to see uh, your salvation spread throughout that land. Lord, let the word sound not only from them, but from us as well. Uh, that we would take the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world around us and call people into relationship with you. Lord, give us understanding of your word today and obedience to it as well. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me ask you a question as we uh, begin this sermon today, and that is what do you love? What comes to mind when I ask you, what do you love? And I don't mean what you say you love, I mean what you actually love. What's the difference? Well, it's, it's actually pretty easy to find out what you really love, and that is, follow the trail of your time and your money, and you'll find where your heart is. Jesus says in Matthew 6.21 that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If you say you love your spouse and your kids, but you spend all of your time at work or play, the truth of what you love is revealed. If you say you love God, but spend no time with him or his church or his word in prayer, the truth gets revealed. See, it's, it's really easy to reduce Christianity down to merely what we think. Uh, we, we oftentimes equate the word believe with think. That if I just think the right thing, I'm saved. Repentance ceases to become important. By the way, in two weeks when we look at our next vital sign, we're going to look at the, the vital sign of repentance. But scripture is clear that salvation and belief is much more than a matter of what we think. It's a matter of what we love. James 2, verse 19, Uh, there James, the brother half-brother of Jesus, says, You believe that God is one. You do well. Uh, That's a think word. You think that God is one. And he commends them. He says, You do well for that. Even the demons believe and shudder. Now, that's not good. The faith of these people who he is writing to is being compared to the faith of demons. Uh, This is a non-saving faith faith. But let's look at the way he describes the demons. He says the demons believe. They know what's true. And not only do they believe, they shudder as in they fear God. Demons know the truth and they fear God, and that that merely intellectual assent That that fear of the Lord is is given to us there in James chapter 2 as the idea of an unsaving faith. The question is this what don't the demons do? They may believe, they may fear, but they don't love the Lord. Biblically, belief, faith, trust in Christ is not merely a matter of what we think, it's a matter of what we love. We saw, oh, I don't even know, 30 years ago now, uh, everybody had bracelets that said WWJD. What would Jesus do? Not inherently a wrong question to ask, but when we reduce the sum of faith to that, we don't get what faith really is. Or we see this lived out when somebody says um, something like, you know, somebody does something kind or... or Selfless, and people say, Oh, that was very Christian of you. Well, Christianity is not merely what we do, and it's not merely what we think. There's a new set of bracelets out that say H W L F, he would love first. Now, that is true so long as we keep in mind what we're commanded to love first, which is the Lord. And only secondarily are we commanded to love people. If we use that as an excuse to love people in in an ungodly way, that does not help. But Christianity cannot, saving faith cannot merely be reduced down to what we think. It is not merely an intellectual assent. We can come to a saving, or we can come to a right knowledge of who God is, and yet not be saved. And so this us to our fifth of nine vital signs. How how do you know you're saved? How do I know I'm saved? Well, we check our spiritual vital signs. And the first vital sign we saw was communion with Christ. That spiritually alive people have a real relationship with the Father and the Son. Secondly, we saw confession of sin. Spiritually alive people aren't sinless, but they are willing to confess their sin and to put to death that sin in their lives. Thirdly, we saw a commitment to God, God's word, which, by which I mean obedience. And Pastor Chris did a great job of explaining to us that, that John wasn't t- telling us how to obey. He was telling us that spiritually alive people can obey. Because of the new birth, because uh, of God's regenerating work in us, because our hearts of stone have been removed and we've been given uh, uh, hearts of flesh with the law written on them, we now can Obey, And then last week, fourthly, uh, Bill showed us that spiritually alive people love other people. It, It is impossible to say you love God and hate people. It's impossible to say you love God and hate his image. And so spiritually alive people love people. And today we come to what is the... The pinnacle of these vital signs, the sine qua non of vital signs, the most important, the the heartbeat of vital signs that without this, nothing else matters. And that is, those who are spiritually alive have a change of affections. What they loved before they were saved, they no longer love. And what they did not love before they were saved, they do love. In other words, we have a new homeland, a new citizenship. We are strangers and aliens in this world. Heaven is our home, and we love things of that world and not things of this world. We love what is associated with our heavenly home, particularly the Lord. People who are spiritually alive have a change of affection. And so I want to ask today four diagnostic questions to help us see where our affections lie. Four diagnostic questions to help us see where our affections lie. Number one, to what family do I belong? To what family do I belong? Look at how John opens this section here. He says, I'm writing to you, and then he gives us three categories, little children, and then children. Those are two different words, by the way. Uh, One meaning infant, the other meaning more akin to offspring. So it doesn't matter whether somebody is young in years or old in years. When they come to faith in Christ, spiritually, they are children. And then we get an address twice to young men. This would include women as well, by the way. This is adolescence. And, and in many ways, we're going to see spiritually adolescence is like physical adolescence. And then also to fathers, to, uh, to, and this would include not only fathers and mothers, but spiritual grandchildren, those who reproduce themselves. But notice these, that these are all family terms. What family do I belong to? Now, infant believers, they have just come to know the Lord. And so in verse. Uh 13, we see, yeah, I write to you, children, because you know the Father. They've met the Father. They know who he is. They have very little knowledge of who he is, maybe, but they know him. Um, Howard Hendricks wrote an excellent book called uh, Living by the Book. And it's these teeny tiny little chapters that step by step help you study and read the Bible for yourself. It's a wonderful resource. I would commend it to everybody. But I think it's in that book. I've read more than one book that he wrote. But he talks about his favorite prayer ever. And that was a new believer joined one of his Bible studies. Somebody who I think he had the privilege of of leading to the Lord. And he came to this first Bible study like he's been a believer for less than a week. And Howard Hendricks says, it's my favorite prayer I ever heard. I'm gonna use the word Doug because it's the first thing that comes to my mind. But he his prayer went something like this: Lord, this is Doug. Um, I met you last week, and I just want you to know that I really, really love you. That is the favorite prayer of a towering scholar from Dallas Theological Seminary. And because it's pure and simple, and there's joy and excitement around life. I love it when babies are around. I love it when babies cry in church because it means they're here. Like we just love grandparents, right? We've all seen the pictures and the videos where grandparents just come to life when they get to hold their grandchildren. There is something exciting and enthusiastic and wonderful about new life and and new spiritual life as well. And they don't know much, but they know the Father and they know, verse 12, their sins are forgiven. And there's just something exciting about that. Then, Then there's spiritual adolescence. There's young men and young women. Now, I remember being an adolescent in terms of years. I remember thinking that I could care for myself, that I didn't need people, that I could provide, and boy, was I kidding myself. But I could conquer the world. Nothing could touch me. I wanted to go out and do great things and big things. And sometimes in life, we look at people who want to do that, and we kind of dismiss it as youthful foolishness. But notice that here... John describes spiritual adolescence in the same way. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. They want to go out and do spiritual battle. They want to slay the dragon. I write to you, young men, because you're strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. And he does it without any criticism. See, the church needs spiritual infants. The church needs those who remind us of the joy and wonder of new life. The church also needs spiritual adolescents who have zeal and want to go out and conquer the world that they live in. But sadly, I think sometimes in the church, the spiritual grandparents and parents stifle that. We don't give it opportunity. We don't give it outlet. We treat it as youthful zeal that is just foolish And rather than saying, oh, I remember when I was like that. But, but notice If you're here today, and and you're a spiritual adolescent, and you want to make a difference in the world, you want to do something for the kingdom, you want to do big and great and wonderful things, that's wonderful. But notice what makes you strong. Verse 14, the word of God abides in you. The way to be strong and to do great things in the world is to let the word of God abide in you. And so as you go out and as you conquer the world, and as we as a church figure out how to make space for that, we need to figure out how to make space for that. Remember that it is the word of God that makes you strong. John Calvin said, zeal without doctrine is like a sword in the hands of a lunatic. Spiritual zeal without the word of God is foolish. And so we want zeal, but we want zeal that that contains truth as well. And then thirdly, he addresses spiritual parents and grandparents. These are people who, who, who have two things. Number one, they have a mature faith. Notice that they don't just know the father. Both descriptions here is that they know him who is from the beginning. This is a much deeper knowledge of who the Lord is. This is years spent in the word. It's the word that makes youth strong. It's the word that makes spiritual grandparents know him who is from the beginning. There is a deeper and more steadfast and abiding knowledge of of who God is. But spiritually, parents and grandparents have reproduced. They have introduced people to Jesus. They have made spiritual children. They are investing in spiritual grandchildren. They are discipling. And I want to offer a word of caution here, and then I want to lay a big challenge on us as a church. The word of caution is this. Equally as dangerous as zeal without doctrine is doctrine without zeal. If it's dangerous to be zealous to make an impact for God without knowing his word, it's just as dangerous to know his word and make no impact on the world. In fact, I think what we should find as we understand God's word is that that, that those churches that are marked by older generations being involved in the church, and and that's us, right? Right? Let's just be honest for a minute. Trinity, over some time, has become an aging church. Now, a lot of times in Christian circles, that is spoken of negatively. I think what that does is put us in a place to do incredible ministry, if we'll just be obedient to the Lord, if we'll just do what he says. And let me show you why. Because I think what we see is that spiritual fathers and grandfathers, mothers and grandmothers. Churches who tend to be on the older side should have the most thriving children's ministries and youth ministries. In Deuteronomy 6, it is the older people in the nation who are commanded to teach who the Lord is to the younger generation. Listen to Psalm 71 verse 18. So, even to old age and gray hairs, oh God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those to come. If if you have gray hair, or should have gray hair and don't, whether that's naturally or from a box, is your concern that you might consume Bible doctrine or that you might pass it along to a generation yet to come? Churches with elderly people in them should be the most thriving children's and youth ministries there are. But if we can be honest about ourselves for a moment, our children's ministries workers have no substitutes. We can't staff a nursery for two services. And I love it when people bring their children in the service, but there's also room for a nursery for younger kids. In Nehemiah 8, when Ezra is teaching the nation the law, the, the scribe Ezra is teaching the nation, uh, only those who could understand were present. That means that those who were too young to understand were receiving child care somewhere else. They were, they were in the Hebrew nursery. Awana is struggling to figure out how to get staffed. Youth ministry does not have enough workers. When when congregations who are marked by gray hair don't have children's ministry and youth ministry workers, there must be an element of disobedience present. Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine, Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, in other words, bearing the same attributes, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They, that is older women, are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children. The older women in the church are to invest in the younger women in the church and children. Now, uh, w- verse 5, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Verse 6, likewise, in the same manner, urge the young men to be self-controlled. In other words, in the exact same fashion, older men are to urge the younger men To be self controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching, show integrity and dignity. From Deuteronomy 6 at the beginning of Scripture to Psalms in the middle to Titus at the end, the older generations are commanded by God's design to invest in the younger generations, those yet to come. We can't just be consumers. It's primarily older people who sit in here and then go to an ABF. I don't love the fact that our adult Bible classes are empty. But I would love to see them emptied of our older generation for the sake of investing in the younger generation, the generation yet to come. The future of the church, the present of the church as well. The reason I say the future is because not that children aren't the church now. Children are the church now. But, but in Psalm 78, he, he prays that God would leave him to invest in a generation yet to come. The reality is this. Well, let me, let me back up for a second and say, I, I know what some of you might be thinking because I hear it over and over again. Young people don't want to spend time with me. Oh, yes, they do. Oh, yes, they do. Yesterday at Jean Reister, or not yesterday, Friday, I keep saying yesterday, at Jean Reister's memorial service, there were kids there who stood up in the time of sharing and spoke of how she would travel to watch their games. Keegan Weston stood up and said, uh, my grandparents don't live in town. She was my in-town grandma kids spoke at her memorial service of the value she was to them because she gave them of herself. She gave them her time, and they desired that. They delighted in that. They do want your time. They do want your attention. They do want your affection. The reality is this, though, that every age and stage needs each other. Infants need cared for by parents, and no matter how much they think otherwise, adolescents are desperately in need of their parents' care and investment, and and, and even protection and provision while they go out and conquer the world around. We've got to be a church that has a place for every age and stage of, of, of life. We need, we need the wisdom and knowledge of, of those who know him who is from the beginning. We need the zeal of those who want to go out and conquer the world. And we need the excitement and joy that surrounds the new life of those who have just met the Father but know their sins are forgiven. We've got to make space for all of them in the church. You say, that's fine and good, Logan. Logan. But how do I know if I'm a part of that family? Well, the next three questions, which I promise go much faster, help us with that. So question number two, diagnostic question number two is, what kingdom do I delight in? What kingdom do I delight in? And here in verse 15, we find the only command, the only imperative in all of this section. Here it is. Do not love the world or the things of this world. If... Anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. We are not to love the world. But what in the world does world mean? Well, to confuse the issue, John uses the word world, Greek word kosmos, in his writings in 10 different ways. Number one, no, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Um, He uses three of them. It, it, he uses the wor- three uses of the word world primarily, and they're very simple. Number one, the planet on which we live. Number two, the people on the planet on which we live. That's like John 3.16. For God so loved the world, not the planet, but the people on the planet, and all of them. And then thirdly, he uses it to refer to the empty, hollow, deceitful philosophies and systems and religions and wisdom and ideologies that permeate this world. And that is the use he is referring to here. He's saying what this world has to offer in terms of knowledge and ideology and wisdom, it's, it, it, we are not to love it. Our affections are to be changed. And if our affections are not changed, God's love is not in us. You can't claim to have the love of the Father in you and love what God hates. John 12, 31 says, Now is the judgment of the world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. By God's permission, he is sovereign over all things. He has allowed Satan to be the ruler of this world. We see this illustrated for us in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Among whom, among the sons of disobedience, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature... Children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Make no mistake, God is the sovereign ruler of all things. But he has allowed Satan to usurp control. And everything this this world loves and values, it's not from God. But here's a, a secondary test to see where your affections lie. When the world's values for marriage, sexuality, gender roles... Uh, who defines people. When the world's values collide with Scripture, do you see Scripture as antiquated, old, out of touch, needing updated? Whose kingdom do you allow to speak truth into you at that point? Or, Or what, here's another question, what are you able to entertain yourself with? If we can't love what God hates, uh, did the anti-Bible, anti-Christian, anti-God agenda of the Handmaid's Tale make it into your queue? Or did you entertain yourself with the graphic sex and nudity, violence, and even rape in the Game of Thrones? I've seen neither of those, by the way. But There's great resources out there on what is contained in them that you can see without defiling yourselves by watching them. What about social media, YouTube, the internet, the computer? John Piper poses a great question to us. What if we, in the morning, when we woke up, turned to our Bibles like we turned to our smartphones? What do you work for? Not who do you work for, what do you work for? Do you work to gain a bigger portfolio, newer truck, better vacations, camp trailer, more time off, more whatever, all while neglecting the poor, the church? missions, Follow the trail of your time, money, and entertainment, and you will find what kingdom you delight yourself in. Thirdly, do I see the source of the world's systems? We've kind of already addressed this, and so I'm not going to linger here, but John 12 and Ephesians 2 have already shown us that Satan is at the helm of this world. Do we see the source of the world's systems? Verse 16, for all that is in the world... The desires of the flesh, Netflix, Hulu, YouTube, great at feeding these. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, pride of life. It's not from the Father, but it's from the world. Do you see the source of the world's systems? Ecclesiastes is also helpful here. Solomon is very clear at the beginning of the book that he sought significance and satisfaction in everything the world has to offer. And in the end, he said it's as futile as trying to catch the wind. These verses are clear, this verse in 1 John, but these other verses are clear that the source of this world and everything it has to offer is Satan. 1 Peter 5.8 tells us what Satan's desire for us is as well. There, Peter says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Satan's primary aim is to devour you, to consume you, to destroy you, to drag you down to hell with him. Why? Because he hates God. And therefore, he hates those who are created in God's image. The world doesn't offer anything good for you. Oh, it offers things that may feel good for a moment, but it will ultimately leave you miserable. Contrast that to God's kingdom, by the way. Ephesians 5.2, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Satan wants to destroy you. That's his kingdom. Jesus was willingly destroyed so that you might have life. That's his kingdom. Jesus didn't come asking what he could get, he came offering to give, to give to you and me, to give to the Father, to be obedient, not to destroy, not to steal or kill, but to give life. Yeah, Satan's kingdom offers fleeting pleasures as it's described in Hebrews, but ultimately it's all destructive and will consume and destroy you. Jesus willingly took on our destruction for sin so that he could give us life. That's his kingdom. Do you see the source of the world's systems? And lastly, do you understand the futility of the world? Do you understand the futility of the world? Look at verse 17. And the world is passing away. It's going to disappear. It's going to be undone. It's going to be rolled up like a scroll. God's going to undo everything he made. Along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. The world is futile. It leads to hell. It is here to destroy you. You can do nothing of significance. You cannot be saved and be a spiritual children and know the Father and your forgiveness. You cannot conquer the world and make a big difference in the world you live in. And you cannot be a spiritual father by investing and pursuing in the world's values. There are only three things that are eternal. God, his word, and people. That's it. That's the only way to make a significant and eternal investment. Everything else is just striving after win. Jesus asked an excellent question in Mark 8:36, "What does it profit a man to gain the world and forfeit his soul?" The answer is nothing. There is nothing to be gained in the world. Nothing. Rather, as this verse in 1 John shows us, we are to do the will of the Father. What is the will of the Father? I think John has in mind John 6.40 as he writes this verse. John 6.40, same author says, and quoting Jesus, says, This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. What is the will of the Father here in 1 John? It is that we would believe. But this is not merely intellectual assent. Mind you, it's it's our affections. This belief is, is a heart and head word. We no longer love the world and the things in the world. We love the things of our next kingdom, our real kingdom, our true kingdom. The rich young ruler illustrates this so well. He comes to Jesus, and he knows who Jesus is and what he has to offer. He says, good teacher. And Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. Now he knows this guy is God, and he's the teacher. He's got something to say. And he knows what Jesus has to offer. How can I inherit eternal life? The intellectual ascent is there. He knows who Jesus is, and he knows what Jesus has to offer, and Jesus hits him right in the affections. He says, take everything you have, sell it, give it to the poor, and follow me. He, He called the rich young ruler to have a change of affections. And we're told in Luke, where we read of the rich young ruler, that he went away sad. He went away sad. He did not love Jesus and what Jesus had to offer more than he loved the things of the world. And he went away sad. And Jesus turns to his disciples and says, it's hard for for rich people to enter the kingdom of heaven. Their affections lie too much with this world. Notice what Jesus doesn't do is renegotiate. Whoa, 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 hold up. I'm desperate for followers. I'm desperate for believers. Come back. I'll change the deal. You don't have to love me. Just think what's right about me, and I'll give you eternal life. He's not that desperate. No, the rich young ruler went away sad. Because belief is not just about what we think, it's about what we love. We have to love Christ more than sin. We have to love Christ more than this world and more than what he has to offer. The kingdom of heaven is not a matter of what you know, it is a matter of what you love. To be clear, you cannot love what you do not know, but you can know what you do not love. In 1519, Hernando Cortez, a Spanish conquistador, this guy was young, he wanted to conquer the world, he did so rebelliously and against orders at times, but he took 11 ships and he sailed to the New World. He, he, the New World to a Spanish conquistador being Mexico. He stops in Cuba with his 11 ships and he buys supplies and a mercenary army. And he sets sail from Cuba and he lands with these 11 ships on the east coast of Mexico, straight east of Mexico City in the, the Gulf of Mexico. And upon arrival and unloading his ships, he scuttled them all. There was a new land, a new world to conquer. There was no retreat, there was no going back, there was no way out. There's nowhere to go but forward have you scuttled your ships to this world have you burned your bridges to this world and i don't mean to people the second use that john uses because we're called to go to people to love people to take the message of salvation and reconciliation to all people have you burned your bridges to this world and its systems and the nothingness of hell that it has to offer Have you burned it all? Colossians chapter 3 calls us to this. Verses 1 through 4 show us the new world. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. This shows us the new world, and it is in heaven, with, in glory with Christ. But verses 5 through 6 call us to scuttle our ships. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry, On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Scuttle your ships. Remove every possibility of retreat to this world that that offers nothing. Burn your bridges to the world's systems. Not to people, but cut your ties with the world and all it has to offer. Set your affections on heaven is not futile, which does not offer nothing, which does not seek to destroy, but seeks to give life. Lord, let us cut our ties. Let us be constantly in the process of having our affections realigned for you. Lord, we, we know that our love for Christ is not yet perfect, but you seek our progress, not our perfection. We are not perfect. We need Christ to be perfect for us. Make our affections for you for the the new world. Give us a willingness to to see the futility of this world's systems and what it has to offer and let us scuttle our ships, burn our bridges, cut our ties to those things and to set our hope fully and securely on you. And then give us great wisdom to go to the people in this world, the perishing, those on the sinking feudal ship of this world and call them to join us in this new world of your kingdom where there is life and grace and forgiveness and joy and every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Lord, let us be a church that serves the next generation, the coming generation that is not content to die until we have passed on the faith to those yet to come. And maybe we, may we be a church that is full of people in all of these stages, that we would value new spiritual life, that we would value those who desire to go and conquer and make a difference and put their faith into practice and give those of us who desire to learn and have a deep knowledge of you who is from the beginning to not be containers of that truth, but to be conduits of that truth and to pass it along to those yet to come, that we might know you and the hope of your kingdom and your goodness. You might call sinners to yourself through us and raise them up to maturity in the faith. Let us value and love and, and enjoy and delight in people in each stage, knowing that we need each other. Let's not be segregated into our age and stage groups, but be connected, uh, seeing our need for one another, and be glorified in it, we ask, in Jesus' name.